This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. You've probably seen this photo. A two-year-old Honduran girl is looking up, distraught and crying, as a purple-gloved hand is sliding into a front pocket of her mother's blue jeans. A figure in khaki pants, the same one wearing the purple glove, has their back to the camera. The woman is being searched shortly after she and her young daughter had rafted across the Rio Grande into Texas. Getty Images special correspondent John Moore took that photo last year. It's up for World Press Photo of the Year Award. I talked with Moore during his recent visit to the University of Texas at Austin about that photo. He first told me how he came to focus his more recent work on covering the U.S.-Mexico border. When I moved back to the U.S. after being gone for so long, well, I had lived in Latin America for many of those years, um, first in Central America, in Nicaragua, and then later on in Mexico. And from Mexico, I covered Central America and South America. I had seen the reasons why people are willing to leave their homes um, and risk everything to come to the U.S. And sometimes that had to do with economics, and sometimes it had to do with violence. Increasingly, it can have to do uh, with climate change as well. So having seen these things living abroad, when I came back to the U.S., I found it a very compelling story for me to start uh, from this side of the border. So how did that previous experience then inform the way you approached that endeavor covering it, I'll sort of say from this side of the border, if you will? Well, I think it probably gave me more empathy because I had spent time in close proximity uh, with people uh, who were dealing with very serious problems uh, in their home countries. I think I was able to see it um, with a little bit more empathy and just a wider perspective than I may have had had I never left my country. You've talked about covering now the border and immigration from both sides. How did you begin to even break down the border and people crossing the border into something that could be chronicled in photographs? I mean, I think border, I think hundreds of thousands of miles, I think vast expanses, I think a lot of people. How did you decide what to photograph? Well, my first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border was in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. And I was photographing, it was actually a um, healthcare-related story back when, um, back when healthcare reform was a big story back in 2008 and 2009. And so I was trying to show how the immigrant community was receiving healthcare uh, there in the, uh, in the valley. And I realized that, yes, that was an important story, but there was, there was so much more to it. And I guess it was 2010. In Arizona, the state legislature passed a very restrictive uh, anti-immigration law called SB 1070. And really, it was that year that I saw a growing, uh, you could say xenophobia, amongst a certain population in the U.S. and fear of immigrants from people who were still suffering during the Great Recession. And that particular fear... I suspected was not going to be isolated only in the state of Arizona. And slowly over time, uh, as we know now, um, now President Trump, he latched on to that, um, that whole issue 
um, which helped him get to the White House. And so early on, I saw some of the symptoms of, of things that would, be, would become nationwide later on. So I'm curious, talking about sort of the, the politics in America, some of the movements in America that have informed fear of immigrants crossing the border. When you are with people who are trying to cross the border, both from south of the border and north of the border, does that culture and philosophy trickle down to folks who are just trying to get here? Do they know what they're going to encounter in some instances when they try to cross? In my experience, most of the people who are making this trek north don't have a complete picture of what awaits them here in the United States. They're concentrating really on on leaving and getting out of difficult situations. And, you know, I've traveled with them uh, for many different parts of their journey, uh, including working um, a lot in Central America and Honduras and uh, in Guatemala, uh, showing how the violence uh, uh, pushes people out. They call they call these push factors, and the push factors have to do with with violence. Have they have to do with poverty and a few other things uh, that cause people to leave. And on that journey, many people travel on top of um, freight trains, uh, which are known there as la bestia, which means the beast. And uh, as it's been said before, it's a it's a monstrous way to travel and uh, very dangerous because people fall off the train tops. During these long, many-hour journeys, um, they can get brushed off the trains by by tree branches, uh, and gangs will push them off if their coyote, if their smuggler, has not paid uh, the fee for them to ride on top. Now, I went on these trains uh, for parts of their journey, uh, not nearly as long, and I did it in areas that were considered relatively safe. Now, learning how to jump up on a moving freight train is a skill that I never thought I would have to learn, but uh, I, was, I was taught by an immigrant uh, who, who showed me how to do it uh, in the most safe way possible. And, um, and so between the trains and most re- recently, so between the trains and most recently the caravans, we've seen how the, the way that people move up from south to north has changed over time. You mentioned the way that people move has changed over time. And I'm curious, in your time of covering the border, what else has changed? Well, there has been a big demographic change over the years. When I first started this project, most of the people coming across were single individuals, usually males, coming across the border uh, illegally to seek work in the U.S. And over time, especially since 2014, the majority of people now are not single individuals, but rather families who are coming up to the U.S. to seek political asylum. And political asylum, um, that definition has been narrowed by the Trump administration. Uh, it no longer legally includes people who are fleeing gang violence or domestic violence. So that has complicated matters for, for many people who are coming up for those reasons. The figures show that of people who do seek political asylum, sometimes it's as little as 10% who actually receive that asylum, and sometimes after a years-long process. And so whether people come up and they cross the border and flee into the U.S., or whether they come over for political asylum to turn themselves in to Border Patrol agents, uh, it is not an easy path uh, for any of them. So you mentioned families, and I have to ask you about a photo you took in 2018 that got a lot of attention. It was June 12th in McAllen, Texas, 
it's a two-year-old Honduran asylum seeker. She is crying and she's looking up as her mother has been detained and she's being searched right near the U.S.-Mexico border. Tell us the story behind that picture. Well, I had been photographing Border Patrol activities already for years, and so I had strong contacts to be able to go and accompany Border Patrol agents doing their work, whether they were chasing people or whether they were taking asylum seekers into custody. During that period last year, in the spring of 2018, the Trump administration had began what it was called as a zero-tolerance policy on immigration on the border, and part of that zero-tolerance was included um, the separation of families, children from their parents, after crossing while seeking asylum. And this was a, a controversial policy that wasn't immediately clear when it was announced in April, but over the weeks that followed it was. So I made numerous requests to the Border Patrol to come down and photograph them as they were dealing with families coming across. Um, several of my requests were not answered, um, and, and then out of the blue, I got a call from a public affairs officer for the Border Patrol in McAllen, and they said I was welcome to come down for, for one shift, uh, an afternoon into an evening, which is what I usually request because uh, as photographers, we, we care about the late afternoon sunlight, uh, the pictures are easier, and into the evening is when most of the action really happens there, when the most people come across. I had been with a Border Patrol agent all afternoon, and uh, they were capturing people. They were taking others into custody who were giving, them, giving themselves up after crossing the Rio Grande. That evening, as I stood with a Border Patrol on the bank of the river, people were coming across in rafts, and they were families. Um, several raft loads came across and landed at different points. Uh, I could hear people crunching through the underbrush as they walked up through the forest towards a dirt road. And when they were all gathered together, the Border Patrol agent went and uh, shone his spotlight on them. And people were naturally a little bit afraid, but they wanted to, to turn themselves in. And so the agent called for reinforcements, and uh, several vans came to transport people away. And one by one, uh, the agent's checked everyone's documents. Um, although the term undocumented immigrants is, is what's generally used, uh, the fact is people who are seeking political asylum come as heavily documented as they can. They bring their national identifications. They may bring electric bills. If they have any court documents showing that they had suffered, had been attacked back in their home countries, they'll bring those as well because that'll be useful during their asylum case. And the agents take up all these documents. They take up personal effects like wallets or backpacks, jewelry, even people's shoelaces. And after they take these things up, they search people individually before they're put into a van and taken to a processing center, um, which happens uh, away from the camera lenses. And so I knew that I was never going to see actual family separations because I knew that that wouldn't happen uh, at a place that I would have access to. But at, at the very least, I could photograph families going into the system, a system where we knew or where we now know that thousands of, of children and parents were separated. And so I began to speak with a mother who was holding a little girl. She said that they were from, from Honduras, and she said they were from Honduras, They'd been traveling for about a month, and the little girl was just under two years old. 
and I didn't have that much time to speak, speak with them as I photographed. And um, finally it came the turn of the mother to be searched, and the officer asked her to set her daughter down on the ground. And the mother looked back and gave a, a sort of a glance back at the officer, like, did, well, like, do I really have to? And she said yes. And um, as soon as the little girl's feet touched the ground, she began, began crying. And it did not last very long. The search uh, probably took no more than 10 seconds, maybe more. But that brief moment of separation between the daughter and her mother um, I could feel it myself. Uh, as a parent of a young child, I, uh, you know when a, a, a child is crying uh, because of uh, even a brief moment of separation, it's, uh, it's sad to hear. And the mother had no idea at the time whether they may or may not be separated. They didn't have any idea that there was a new policy that had gone into place just in the week before. And um, I knew that it was a possibility. Now, when I wrote my caption, I was careful to say that they were being taken to a processing center for possible separation because I had no idea. I think in some ways the reason why that photograph um, was published so widely and became viral online is probably because of the possibility that that mom and that daughter may no longer be together. And uh, that possibility weighed heavily on me. When I found out the following week that they remained together, I was, I was quite relieved. Do you know if they stayed together? Do you know what happened to them after that week? I have uh, remained in touch with them. Sandra is the mother, and uh, her daughter is Yanella, and they are seeking political asylum. They were in detention facilities, I think three different centers, for almost three weeks in South Texas. And when they were released, because they had a, um, a credible fear, uh, it, was, it was determined by a judge, they were released and went uh, to the East Coast. At first, they were in Virginia, and then they um, shifted to the Washington, D.C. area, and now they're in another place. And I'm in touch with Sandra. She and I uh, remain in contact, and uh, she prefers that I don't discuss really the details of her case because it's yet to go in front of the courts, and, uh, and she doesn't want to risk that, and I, and I certainly don't want to risk that for her. But, uh, but they're doing okay, and... Uh, and uh, I hope to continue following her story. So a situation such as the one you described or other situations where you're capturing powerful emotional scenes, what is it like for you to be in those situations as presumably a detached observer? Or can, can you be detached? Well, um, we bring with us when we come to any situation, whether it's a a, an emotional environment or a hostile environment, uh, we bring our experiences with us as photojournalists. And for me, I would never say that the camera is my shield. I think that's really cliche. But I would say that the belief that what I do matters on a daily basis is really in some ways a shield for me. If I didn't think that, that pictures could make a difference in this world, I, I like to think that I would look for another type of work, um, especially after all these years. And, and knowing that, yes, once in a while, our pictures can make a difference. Do I know that this photograph affected U.S. policy? Um, I can't know that for sure. But I do know that this image caused a public debate about the new policies of immigration and zero tolerance 
and the idea of separating children from their families. And the fact that that became a public discussion and that things moved on from there, I feel really good about. Well, and in that case, it put literally a face to a story that might otherwise be numbers and maps and boundaries. Everybody could see the two-year-old and her reaction to that immediate, if even brief, separation from her mother. We know that uh, for some 2,000 other children and families, uh, they were not so fortunate to remain together. And we also now know that when the government separated them, the policy was so rushed that they did not have the protocols in place to reunite children with their parents in the weeks and months that followed. And so, you know, Border Patrol and the U.S. government agencies, they're all about procedures. And when policies are rushed into place without determining the steps of how they move forward or whether they, when they have to move backwards, those same very steps have to be followed. And when they don't have those procedures in place, then you have the, the sort of debacle that, that happened this last year with the implementation of that policy. So I want to ask you just a little bit about um, kind of the tools of your trade, if I could. I was thinking about the ways that we as media and news consumers sort of experience photojournalists work. And I'm going to say in the olden days in quotes, you know, you would see a photo in a printed newspaper or in a news magazine or maybe as a still image on a TV newscast. But now you know, images live forever, and they're shared, and people see them on phones, they see them on tablets, they see them on desktop computers. Has the proliferation and breadth of delivery vehicles for photographs, has that changed how you approach your work? Well, for me, it's important to try and humanize the issues that I'm photographing. People see so many images every single day. They see thousands, whether it's still pictures or whether they're videos or whether they're memes. There's so many pictures that come across people's phones that they don't even spend a second looking at most of them. And so for me, it's important to establish a connection, a whether it's an emotional connection or an intellectual connection between a f the photograph and the person who's looking at it. And so if I can make people feel with my images then maybe they'll spend just a little more time to read the caption or look at the other images that come along with it to have more context to the story. And so when I can stop people and slow them down enough to really spend time with a picture, then that image is much more successful. Well, that seems hard to slow people down. That's a very, that's a very evocative phrase because that's really what it is. It, and it seems tough to me to really get people to stop and look for more than a second. Well, you, we see that even on nightly news broadcasts, which are typically a video, they'll oftentimes open their news broadcast with series of still pictures. And even in the stories within a broadcast, they use man, many still images. So yes, I do video as well, but the power of the still image, even after all these years, when you think of iconic pictures in the past from Vietnam, from different eras in our history, the strength of the still image endures even to this day. John Moore is the special correspondent for Getty Images. His 2018 book is Undocumented, Immigration and the Militarization of the United States-Mexico Border. John, thank you so much for your time and discussion today. Thank you.